Straight from the hard, cold region of northeastern Pennsylvania. The podcast by coaches for coaches. Welcome to Bandbox Baseball with your hosts, Corey Nido and Paul McGloin. Now let's hit the field running. Welcome back to another episode of the Bandbox Baseball Podcast. I'm Paul McGloin along with Corey Nido. This will be our 10th installment now of Season 1. Before we get into it, just wanted to mention, for those of you that listened to the last episode with Coach John Sheff of Virginia Tech University, I definitely think it's worth a listen, uh, not only for baseball coaches, but for coaches of any sport where he had spoken about the importance of practice, the importance of relentless positivity, and how to create toughness within your team. Teddy had a lot of good things to say, Corey. How about you? Yeah, I agree. Um, I really liked what he had to say. And, you know, he kind of mentioned it doesn't matter where you're at, what level you're at, you know, if you bring that positivity to the practice, you know, your guys are going to respond. And I think that is always applicable to not only baseball, but you mentioned other sports and even in real life, you know, if you're at work and you're not around a positive mindset and, and culture, I think you're kind of set up to fail. And I, I really enjoyed what Coach Jeff had to say. Our guest this week is Matt Hobbs, who is the pitching coach at the University of Arkansas, a guy who has been well-traveled in, in himself as a pitching coach all over this country, a California native. And, Corey, you had mentioned something to me when we were speaking a little bit earlier about he's kind of really the next wave of pitching coaches we're seeing in this country. Yeah, it seems that just doing some research, uh, he's, a, he's a young and upcomer, so to speak, and he's really big into the analytics, and we both know that's kind of where the game of baseball is going. Um, definitely interested to see how much he relies on it. Looking forward to kind of asking him about what he's done at his previous stop at Wake Forest and now what he plans to do in Arkansas as well. Awesome. Let's bring him in. Pitching coach, University of Arkansas, Matt Hobbs. Hobby, how you doing? Doing great, Paul. Thanks for having me on. We're two weeks outside of the start of your season. I know you're extremely busy. you got a million things going on, so I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. Corey and I were speaking about it a little bit earlier. We're excited. So we'll get rolling. And correct me if I'm wrong, you pitched at the University of Missouri. Yep. Uh, you had stops where you were an assistant coach at Chapman University, Santa Barbara City College. You were at University of California, San Diego. Then you went up with Nino Giratano at University of San Francisco, pitching coach at Missouri. From Missouri, you went to Wake Forest, and then from Wake Forest, it landed you back at Arkansas. That's it. You got that's it. it. The whole, that's the whole trip. <laughs> if you take a look at your track record, I mean, statistically speaking, everywhere you've been, the pitching staff has always improved under your tenure. And the thing that's, I think, most impressive when you look back is that you had 33 pitchers that have either been drafted or signed. 29 of them were not drafted or signed prior to work with you. So what do you attribute all that to success to? I think it's a lot about the players more than anything. You know, you you try to find some guys that you feel like have some ceiling and that are hard workers and guys that have potential to not only help at the college level but to move on beyond that. And, you know, you have to get lucky with some of those kids. But I, I, all the play, all the credit really goes to the player and how willing, how willing they are to work hard. And if, as a coach, you can go out and recruit guys that you think can have an ability to get better and then you get right, you know, with the with the work ethic and their dedication to, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to do, then I, I think it they go as far as they want to push it. So a lot of, you know, it's a little bit of luck. And then, you know, you got 33 guys that probably worked their, you know, 29 of the 33 guys had to work their tails off. And, you know, four of them were guys that were already drafted. 
let me ask you this. When you're taking over as a new pitching coach or a new staff, how do you approach that? I, I just throw a quick one at you. you know, I don't have the track record you do, but I spent two years as a Division One pitching coach. I remember going into my interview, and I had looked at the previous, I think, four years worth of staff. And one of the things that jumped out to me in trying to improve a staff that one would inherit was at the time it was something like the opposing team was hitting well over 300 with two outs against the pitching staff. And in my mind, I thought to myself, man, that's got to be something that is an attitude that's preached that's got to be changed. I have no idea right. how you can have a team on the ropes and not be able to put them away and have their batting average actually go up with two outs. So I kind of dug into the numbers to try and look at what you were inheriting, kids coming back, what you could change, mm-hmm. what could you alter. So when you're taking over a, a new staff, what are some of the things that you kind of immerse yourself in to try to improve I think the first thing that you do is take take stock of the personnel and then you take stock of the people and you spend a lot of time getting, trying the best you can. And, you know, sometimes you have a pretty long time to, to do that. Sometimes you start in the fall. You know, I've come in the last, really last year with, with Arkansas, I came in halfway through the year. So you immerse yourself in the people more than anything. And if you can get the people to buy into what you're going to be doing um, on a personal level, it makes the either the mechanical changes, the usage rates, the ability to use different pitches, whatever it is that you have to try to change, uh, a heck of a lot easier to get across to the players. But you you do have to look statistically at kind of what they've done well, what they haven't done well in their, you know, either the previous season or throughout their careers to try to decide where you can make some change. But the first thing is the, the person themselves and spending a lot of time as much time as you can doing that and learning about what makes them tick and you know what what's going to help them from a, either the stuff standpoint or maybe it's just how they've been talked to in terms of like learning styles or anything along those lines that really helps you know speed up the process and speed up the curve of what you're trying to do. If you were to give me then kind of a summary of the Arkansas pitching philosophy, what, what would some of the staples be? I think one of the the main staples is you have to be able to command a pitch that can produce outs. And I think that, you know, people start with, well, you know, everybody's got to be able to command the fastball and then, you know, have a breaking ball. And we I look at it more like if we can have a pitch that can produce outs and really be able to command and throw it really in any count that we have uh, available to us, whether that's slider, that's a curveball, that's change-up, split, fastball, four-seam, two-seam, elevated, you know, whatever – whatever it is, wherever the metrics take us, they have to be able to command something that can produce outs. Um, from a statistical standpoint, you want to look at something like, if we're looking at that pitch, that pitch has to be able to produce high in-zone swing percentages and then also high in-zone swing and miss percentages for whatever that pitch is. And then from there you look at what kind of swings and misses can they get with that pitch outside the strike zone. Mm-hmm. And then I think you have to go to their command of the pitch and how often they can glove strike it. You know, you have to look at all those things together. To, they need a pitch that can do that first. Second thing to be able to do from a, just a philosophical standpoint is they have to be able to produce in situations where they have runners on base. That's really where you, the story of the season is usually told, like what's the batting average against with runners on base, what's the whip with runners on base. Mm-hmm. What do the pitches do? when there are runners on base, we have to be able to excel in those areas. And then, you know, you have to be able to control the game in terms of holding runners and being able to field your position. And just, you know, some of those things, when you holistically look at a pitcher, they have to be able to do all of those things. They have to be able to do pretty much everything well to be successful in the SEC, especially on the West. 
in the west, you know, in the west of the SEC. But you know, you start to look at philosophically, we just need to be able to produce swings, produce swings and misses, produce soft contact, be able to control the game um, on the mound, either you know the running game or defensively with ourselves being able to fill a position. You mentioned that these guys, these pitchers, need one pitch to get out. I had the luxury of seeing Brady Singer and Jackson Coar in the Royal system this year mm-hmm. out of Florida. Jackson Coar may be the best fastball changeup combo in the draft, and Brady yep. Singer, the competitiveness, but he has a really good two-seamer. Is it more prevalent in the SEC where all these staffs have a pitcher or two that have that out pitch opposed to other stops that you've been at? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the stuff is overall that you see in our conference is, is really exceptional. Top to bottom in the league. So I think the depth of the pitching in the SEC is what really stood, stood like has stood out to me. I've had two stops in the SEC, one in Missouri and one here. Um, and that was the thing that always, when people would ask me the difference between ACC, SEC, Big 12, any, really any place I'd coach, you know, what's the difference? The difference is that how deep the league is. I think, our second year at Missouri, which was our my, my fourth year at Missouri, which is our second year in the SEC, we had two or three, I think it was three guys that ended up pitching in the big leagues on the pitching staff, and we were like one of the worst teams in the conference. So, wow. you know, that's it, it's amazing when you look at how deep, like you, you'll, the team you're trying to get to on your schedule to get some wins had three big leaguers on their staff. So, you know, that <laughs> it just show, it goes to just preach the how how deep the league is. We played Kentucky last year and they they had a rough year last year, but they threw Zach Thompson at us and I think he went seventeenth overall and he beat us. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of really, really quality arms, whether it's having a, a one pitch they can get guys out with or a mix or, you know, really anything. They just do a lot of things well and there's a lot of them. Seems like every team has two or three guys in the bullpen. They're going to be thrown in the mid to up, you know, mid to upper 90s and have some kind of wipeout secondary pitch. And you know, I think that there are certainly really good pitchers in the Big 12, the in the ACC. Um, I just think there's probably a greater depth of talent in the SEC. Interesting you mentioned all those things to me because you go back to remember the old Big Five, they would say years ago with your pitching staff, you need to be able to throw a fastball for strike any time in the count. You need to be able to throw a secondary pitch, whether it be a breaking ball, whether it be slider, then behind the count, be comfortable throwing a third pitch behind the count. Number four, being able to control the running game. And number five, being able to field your position. I think so much of that has remained the same, but we've kind of taken it to a higher level because we're seeing more talented pitchers. We're seeing guys throwing harder than they've ever thrown and like you yeah. see we're seeing more depth top to bottom in college baseball than we ever seen on pitching staffs no question i think the other thing that you see is the usage rates of how pitchers use their stuff has completely changed i remember as a pitching coach at uc san diego in one of my first stops i did an interview with baseball america about using the fastball and how i thought it was the most important pitch in baseball and i still believe in some of those things and we were throwing like 72 or 73 percent fastballs at the time and we we're having a lot of success and the longer i've coached i mean it's 50 50 fouled off speed pitch now you know we had one of the best pitchers in the country last year who threw you know, 91 to 95, 96, which is a power fastball at the college level. Mm-hmm. And it was it was probably, there was days when it was 55% off speed pitches just because he had an ability to land them and an ability to leave the zone with them and an ability to command them. And you see less and less fastballs thrown, honestly. You know, I had a kid at Wake Forest that I coached, um, Griffin Roberts, who ended up being a really high draft pick for the Cardinals. And I think their first pick, I think it was a compensation, you know, between the first and the second round draft pick. And he threw 42% fastballs, like 58% off speed pitches. And the ability to throw those pitches and have 
you know, not only action on these pitches, but also be able to throw them with a great deal of velocity. And as you see velocity in the fastball climb, it's really just the, the secondary pitches are so much better and so much firmer, and they have so much more ability to throw them more often. So if you, if you look at anything, you know, if any good pitching coach is going to look at what the hitters square up the majority of the time, and it's fastballs. And so you see more and more and more off-speed pitches thrown. One of the things, Matt, I think that's really impressive about you is, I don't know if you've heard this before, this is just my take, but I think the thing that impresses me the most is your approach to teaching. And here's what I mean by that. I have a teaching degree, and I remember having a professor that was also an old football coach in college, and he would say, teaching is coaching, coaching is teaching. And any of our listeners haven't seen it yet, you can go onto the uh, ABCA's website, American Baseball Coaches Association, and buy a copy of Matt's speech he made at the National Convention past year, which is excellent. And part of your speech, you spoke about types of learners, about getting to know the type of pitcher you have. And in essence, it's something that I think we've always said as pitching coaches, but you've kind of taken it to another level. What I mean by that is, yeah, we would tell the time, well, hey, if I got 15 pitchers on my staff, I got 15 different personalities, 15 mm-hmm. different sets of mechanics, et cetera. And you kind of take it to the point where you're saying, well, I'm going to take this from a standpoint where the kid, is he a visual learner? Is he an auditory learner? Is he a reading, writing learner? Is he a kinesthetic learner? And yeah. I don't know if I'm, if I'm getting off base with this, but I kept thinking back to when I was trained with Howard Gardner and his theory of seven multiple intelligences, which they teach teachers. And yeah. all of what you, all of what you said fits into those profiles. And for those people, that are listening that might not be familiar with that. It was basically Howard Gardner was an educator that certain kids learn different ways. And it's up to you as a teacher and or a coach to find what's the best way that that student, that player, that pitcher learns and teach them in that manner if you want to be able to get the most out of them. And you were really the first time I've seen that taken to the level of being a pitching coach. So I was wondering if you could please speak about that as well. Yeah, I mean, that kind of starts from how I was brought up, I think. You know, my my mom was a principal in Southern California for 20-plus years and was an elementary education, you know, an elementary education teacher for, you know, probably 15 years before that, probably 30, 35 years in the school district. My brother's a principal at a, you know, kind of high-achieving STEM school in Southern California. Four, I think four aunts and two uncles are teachers, and that was just kind of the way I was always – I always thought I was going to be a teacher, honestly. I never yeah. thought I'd be a, I never really thought I was going to be a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied, you know, kind of prepared myself to go get my teaching credential after I finished in Southern California and started on it actually when I was at Chapman. That's the reason I went to Chapman as a coach was because they had a good, you know, a good education department. So I started mm-hmm. my credential there and was doing some substitute teaching at the time and, and kind of just kind of fell into coaching because I could throw batting practice at, at that point in my life. <laughs> And no longer can do no longer can do that, but I used to be able to be okay. And yeah. you know, I I got to thinking about just all the people that I'd ever run into as coaches. There were some that were also more like trying to teach, you know, what they were trying to get across instead of just you know present a plan of here's what we're going to do from a throwing standpoint or here's how we're going to do this or here's how we're going to do that. It was more like I was being taught something, and I always felt like. That was the thing that helped me the most as a player. And when I got into, you know, started coaching, I just decided that was just going to be something that I did. Because I was always planning on being a high school coach, and I figured at some point I'm going to have to be able to be a teacher. So I'm going to keep trying to keep my skills sharp when I was at Santa Barbara City. And that's what I was going to do, is try to be as much of a teacher as I could on the field. And, you know, 
now here we are, you know, 19, 18 years later and 17 years later, whatever it is. And now you're starting to look at these, how important learning styles can be because we have access to this limit, you know, there's limitless technology out there for the players, but knowing what type of learning you have helps you identify what piece of tech to use sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a kinesthetic sense where a guy's going to have to really get his, you know, hands dirty in something and, get on the force mound we have at Arkansas and we're lucky to have it and be able to really feel his way through his delivery. And sometimes a guy's going to need a really detailed post-game report with track man metrics and, you know, metrics against the baseball. And he's going to need to really see it and then try to try to tie that to video or, you know, or whatever else, other the piece of technology we want to use. But sometimes I think, you know, players, people like myself who, who deal in, who deal in pitchers get, really caught up in what's the next thing out there, you know, whether it's technology or a new methodology. And we forget that what we are at the the core of what we do is we're we're just teaching people a skill or just trying to help them acquire a skill, whatever that is, you know, whatever piece that is in their delivery and, or in, you know, how they use pitches or anything. They're just, it's skill acquisition and you have to know something about teaching to be able to help your players through that process. Yeah, because yep. you you basically went the opposite of a cookie cutter approach. Is how many people in the past say, "All right, listen, these are pitching mechanics, period." And yeah. if you come here, these this is how we're going to teach every kid to pitch. And there's certain staples in here that are non-negotiable. This is your balance point. This is your release point. This is your follow-through finish. And you went the other way, saying, "Well, I'm going to basically find out how each one of my kids learns the best. Find out what the best mechanic is for that individual pitcher, and then I'm going to roll with it." which is you yeah. know, a completely different approach to pitching. So when you say learning those four different styles, can you kind of talk about your process in doing that when your kids show up at Arkansas? So it starts really, you know, as crazy as this sounds, their freshman year of high school for a lot of these kids because mm-hmm. that's how young we're recruiting them. So you have two to three years at least for most that you have a relationship built up where you're trying to, drop pieces into the conversation, talk to their parents, talk to their coaches, talk to the travel ball coaches, just figure out what has been done with this kid. What are the things that have worked with this, with this player? Like what, how have they been talked to? Like what are the cues that you've been trying to use with them? And then try to think about, all right, well, how does that fit what we do with some of our guys? And then really try to dig into get really specific kind of the, during the senior year of, all right, what are the things you're doing to learn? Like, how do you, how does, like, how do you learn in a, your math class? How do you learn in your history class? And how does that translate to the baseball field? What, what pieces of technology are you using? How are you using them? It's, it's a long process. And then when they get to us, um, they, they have to be able to continue to demonstrate the abilities they've, shown, they've kind of walked us through when they start failing. Because inherently they're going to fail as soon as they show up in the fall. You know, they're going to get out there against Heston Kerstad and Casey Martin and try to get them out, and they're not going to be able to because very few people can that are good, and most freshmen that show up aren't very good. They're just overwhelmed with everything that's going on. And if they can continue to exhibit the same methods of learning that they have kind of told us about and shown us as high school players and amateurs, then that that, that kind of leads us down the path of, all right, here's exactly the way we need to coach these players. And if it starts to be a little bit different, then we have to adjust, and then we have to really sit down, dig in, and find out, well, this style is not working, even though he claims to be this type of learner. Let's try a different method and see if that works, and then just continue to kind of drill away at it, you know, try a little bit of trial and error and some elbow grease when they show up. And by the end of 
really by the end of the first half of the fall, you've got a pretty good sense of kind of what you're dealing with. And some of that will change over time, too, with some of your older players will start to, you know, be exposed to new things. Like we brought in a bunch of Edgertronic cameras when I got here initially, and you now a lot of guys became visual learners because they had access to that piece that they didn't necessarily have a ton of before. And, you know, the Rapsodo units, the track man, all that, um, mm-hmm. they've now kind of been able to walk their way through some, some things in the bullpen where before they were using, I think, portable track man, and then they had obviously the track man on the field here that they were they were using. But they're just bringing in some different things. Um, can help bring out different different abilities for, for players to you know, exhibit their ability to learn. I find it interesting that you said, you know, that this technology, so to speak, isn't the end-all, be-all in coaching. You still have to coach these players, but you're diving into the rap soto and everything. And I read that you uh, developed what you call the Hardcore Biomechanics Lab at Wake Forest. <laughs> um, before I get into that, because um, – I know that's where the new age of baseball is. I work with an affiliate for the Kansas City Royals, and they have really kind of pushed all in to getting this equipment. Can you kind of tell the listeners who may not be aware of what Rap Soto does, maybe in terms of how to show a pitcher, hey, your curveball's tilting on this axis, but your slider isn't really spinning the way it's supposed to be? Yeah, I think that so the Rap Soto gives you a little bit of just real time feedback for players. I think it's about an 11 second feedback on the new on the new the 2.0. The other the 1.0 the tripod was a little bit more in the 12 to 14 second range, but this is the the new ones between eight and 11 seconds depending on the pitch. So it really is real time for most for most pitchers. It'll take about that long between a pitch and a bullpen session, and it does show ball flight. It shows spin metrics. It shows release angle, which is really important when you're dealing with breaking balls and fastballs. It shows horizontal and vertical breaks. It shows raw spin versus true spin. It shows spin efficiency. Um, It also gives you the path of the ball versus the intended path of the ball without spin, so it gives some good visuals for the players. That paired up with a, you know, any kind of high-speed camera that you can use pretty much at the same time, so you can start to show pictures, all right, well, here's what it looks like out of your hand, and here's what the Rapsodo is giving us and then here's you know for us personally now we're looking at all right what do the metrics look like on the trackman in game we can start to kind of look at these things in different platforms even though they're not measuring the same way they do give us some um, ver- some versions of consistency um that we can start to look at whether you know we're going to use the episode on the bullpen we're going to use trackman in the game so we have two different sets of numbers that we work with which is a little cumbersome sometimes but it isn't anything that affects us from developing but it, the Rapsodo just gives gives players some really high quality feedback. It's a great machine, and you know, I've, I've had one since I think I don't know how long it's four years or, or so that we've been tracking pitchers. And you know, frankly, I don't think I've thrown had any pitcher throw a pitch in the last five years that wasn't either on a high speed camera or Rapsodo or TrackMan. And I know I know younger guys are, are kind of drooling at the opportunity. Your predecessor, obviously uh, hired by the Twins straight out of the college ranks for the first time mm-hmm. in almost four decades. But your your hardcore biomechanic lab, from what I've read, included 24 cameras. Just how did that come about, and are you able to kind of utilize that in Arkansas over the next couple of years? I think we'll eventually get something close to it at Arkansas. The, the thing that made the Wake Forest lab differently than, different than most labs on any kind of a college campus is uh, Dr. 
Kristen Nicholson, who is uh, she's a biomechanist, but she was working with figure skaters or the U.S. figure skating team, I believe, is where we ended up getting her from somewhere up in Delaware. And she's a full time she's a doctor, and she was hired by you know the, in conjunction with uh, Wake Baptist and the baseball program, kind of share her. But she works right out of the baseball facility, and she has an office there, and she runs a motion capture lab. Um, there's six, 16 of the cameras are um, infrared mocap cameras, and then there's when I left, there was another four outside, and then also another four tripod cameras inside. That's where the 24 came from. But it's a tw- the, the actual mocap system is a markered motion capture system, so it, it is every joint angular velocity, every type of vertical angle you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to mess up some of the stuff just because there's so many things that a motion capture gives you. But it, it was it's a lab, basically. It was a full-on lab. And it had an indoor track man, uh, two Rapsodo units, and then the, ca- the cameras themselves. And then, you know, as as right as I was leaving, they were building the force plates into the mount. So there's a force mount there also. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's basically a, a, a laboratory for study. It also doubles in getting pictures better. And they've done a good job with it, and there's no question. You know, John Hendricks, who took over for me when I left, was kind of, if I could have picked somebody to take that job, but he would have been the guy and he's dove right in and really, you know, Coach Walter is the driving force behind behind that building and he did I can't even begin to imagine the amount of funds he had to raise on his own. All I did was just say, Yeah, those are the cameras. <laughs> those are the cameras that I that I think we should go with and you know, participate in interviewing you know, Kristen Nicholson, and then also, you know, have an idea of kind of what we were trying to get, what we were trying to capture, and then push for the force mound. And, you know, it's it was a, a team effort to get it done, no doubt. And Coach Walter drove the bus on that, and, you know, I was just really fortunate to be a part of it. And we'll definitely do. You know, we have a Mounted Measures Force Arkansas that's been really helpful. And then uh, we'll add probably a markerless system in our new building when the new building will be done beginning of 21. So it'll be pretty pretty exceptional. You bring up, I think, two areas I like to delve into, Matt. Number one, we'll have coaches from all over the radar listening to this podcast, from guys Mm -hmm. that are coaching T-ball all the way up through the college ranks. So first off, if you were a coach that, and we've all been in this position at some point in our career, if you were a coach who maybe didn't have access to this type of technology or didn't have the funds, but you did maybe just simply have your phone or have a small camcorder, what are some of the things that you would suggest to those guys that, would just have those resources to use video to help improve their pictures. I think finding a way to build a small staff, as crazy as this sounds, if you're a high school coach or you're even utilizing players to give lessons to, kids know more about how to manipulate their, their iPhones or manipulate high-speed video than most adults. And we've been very fortunate to have a, you know, a few guys that we have worked with here at Arkansas that are that are really good with the with an basically with a camera and iMovie. But overlaying deliveries is one really good way to start. And literally it's just like we actually found we took a an iPad and you know an, the iMovie app and just were making overlays of side video side angle shots of our guys during the during their game footage because our our Edutronics were inside one day, and it was like it was just as valuable. I mean, the, the Edutronics cost seventy five hundred dollars, and the iPhone everybody's got, and the iPads everybody's got. Right. And I would start with being able to 
get as get as sharp a shot as you can on the ball out of the hand. If you can't get the split of the baseball in the hand, get the ball get ball flight because you can get ball flight pretty easily off of a off of a camera or off of you know just a phone. And then work on getting those showing kids tunnels and showing them how they're using their stuff or how the different the differences in release on fastball to off speed pitches or you know, change up the curveball or anything like that to show if players are going to have any kind of tells in what they're throwing. I think that's really valuable. And then showing kids ball light in terms of what their ball is doing, showing them if they're cutting their fastball, if they're getting horizontal movement on a changeup, if they think they're throwing a curveball and they're getting slider spin, if they think they're throwing a slider and getting curveball spin. These are just ways to help speed up the process of developing um, with, you know, very with limited resources in some ways. I mean, you could take it as far as, figuring spin axis off of drawing a black, taking a black marker and splitting the ball in half or two-seam and four-seam fastballs and then videoing that ball flight to give an idea of what's happening with the axis of the spin for the pitcher. Um, you can do some really generally easy things with looking at a clock face and just, you know, being able to talk about spin axis that way and also just looking at degrees and, you know, working off of 180 to 270 to, you know, 360 to 90 and just trying to figure out where the axis of the spin is going. You can look at direction of spin on breaking balls. Just, just there's something simple as a black marker and a camera. And it's it's not hard. You have to put in some time. I mean, it's it's not, it's certainly not something that, you can just pick up one day and be really good, you know, with showing video to players. But if it's important and, you know, you have to MacGyver it a little bit, it's it's not impossible to do at all. Awesome. The second part would be how do you balance the metric versus the human quotient? We, we hear that a lot. Uh, yeah. We, you know, we, get, we delve into this stuff. So how, as a guy who's well-versed in the latest technology, but at the same time a guy who knows and understands how to develop mechanics, how to allow his players to use their athleticism, how do you balance the two? I think the first thing you have to start with is empathy for how hard it is. You know, I think a lot of – I mean, generally a lot of people look at, you know, so I'm looking at a fastball and I'm in a bullpen – like I actually just was today, and I'm seeing 15 inches of vertical carry on a fastball, and we try to get it to 20 inches of vertical carry on a fastball before we consider it to be something that we can use that is important in the strike zone. In my head, it's like, well, why can't we just get five more inches of that? But knowing what I know about pitchers, it's incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And being able to talk to your pitchers about, here are the things that we're trying to do with this pitch, and also to have empathy for look, We know how hard this is. And here are some tools for how we're going to help you along instead of just what happens a lot of times in, in, at some places, and especially what, what was probably happening five years ago in professional baseball was, hey, this is the number you need to get to. Here's your numbers. We'll see you in two weeks. Instead of, all right, here's where we're at. Here are the places we're trying to go. Here's a plan for how we're going to get there, and let's get to work. I think that you have to have – I don't think one exists without the other anymore in terms of being a type of a pitching coach. I think that the people that aren't open to learning about methods that are out there now are going to get passed really quickly. When, you know, whether you have access to all of these or not, you have to be able to at least understand them, I think, right. if you really want to do this at a pretty high level. But it has to start with what are you trying to get out of this player or this pitcher? What are the, Where are we trying to go? Like, are you trying to move an axis? Are you trying to drive movement? Are you trying to create a new pitch? Are you trying to sharpen a current pitch? Like, what are the things that you're trying to do with them? Identify that first, and then have a very clear way to talk to the players
numbers or what you're just or what you're trying to get them to, to do. And I think a lot of the times the two get lost. You know, you try to not talk to a player and shield him from information because you don't think he can handle it and what he needs is information. And then you try to, you know, impart too much information and what the player really needs is to change the grip slightly on a pitch instead of, right. you know, get right. way too technical with it. It's just, I, I just think people try to exist in these worlds that they're either going to be a data coach or they're not going to be, and, like, that's crazy to me. If you Man, can measure I, it and you have the ability to measure it, why wouldn't you? Exactly. Like, why would you not use it if it's going to help you? And then I, I remember, I don't want to misquote him, but something to the effect I heard Joe Madden say, you hear some guys say, well, I'm old school. And uh, he says, I kind of look at that as an excuse just not to be to be lazy and not get caught up with the current trends and what's important in baseball. I think kind of, you're, you're kind of speaking to that point. But now you mentioned bullpens. Can you kind of describe essentially what you do in your bullpens if we have coaches that are coaching younger pitchers? I mean, do you, do you script them? Are they lengthy? How do you handle your pitchers in their pens? My pens are all relative to what type of – it's kind of like strength training, I guess. You're just looking at, you know, hypertrophy and periodization, <laughs> how you do your bullpen. There's times when they're going to be slightly more lengthy. There's times when they're going to be shorter. Um, we really don't script anything for the pitchers because I think that they have to be given some freedom. Now, the one thing I, do, I would always recommend is – creating a clear objective before the pen starts. Like, here's the objective for today's bullpen. Like, the kid today, the kid I was working with this morning, it was, you have a slider and a curveball. You threw 5% breaking balls your last outing. Of your off-speed pitches, you threw 65% sliders. Like, we need to spend some more time on the bigger breaking ball today to make sure we don't lose shape between your outings. So there's a clear objective for the pitcher before it starts. And I think that's probably the best way to start. So far, you've given us a ton of stuff to think about, but one of the things that was jumping out to me was how do you translate, I guess we would phrase that as tech to feel? And I guess mm-hmm. what I mean by what I mean by that is you're going to take a kid and, and if, let's just say hypothetically I'm a dad coaching a little leaguer and I show him some things about his mechanics and about his release point. Now, how do you create an objective where you say, all right, here's, here's where we need to improve. Here's some areas where we need to sharpen the saw, so to speak. Here's how we're going to do it. How do you translate that technology into getting him to produce results on the mound and create a feel for it? I think you have to start with creating movements in the pre-throw routine that can manipulate what you're trying to do with the delivery. So we use medicine balls quite a bit here. You know, whether they're on the mound, uphill, downhill, flat, rotational throws, shot puts, just things that give pitchers a feel for the, the move we're trying to create, single leg squats on a box. I mean, something as simple as that can create guys that we're trying to activate more of a glute-driven delivery and shift the weight from their toe to their heel. Um we do try to give them movement patterning that starts at the beginning of their pre-throw routine to almost altering the method of where they warm up to what we're trying to get them to do. Because what they're going to do is warm up every day. They're not going to throw right. a bullpen every day. They're not even going to play catch every day. They're going to get loose every single day. So if we can find, like, and again, it's different for a lot of guys. If you're trying to shorten a stride, lengthen a stride, drive a heel, you know, get the foot, get the weight more into the midfoot. I mean, anything really. Control the back knee direction. Um, you need to create some skills they can work on, whether it's in the weight room, whether it's in the pre-throw routine, whether it's part of the warm-up that can manipulate. These are the things that will help translate to the actual delivery so that when they get on the mound, the movement, the movement pattern is something they've been doing. Um, you can also use implements, you know, core velocity belt, the Velo Pro Harness. These are two great tools for being able to you know, help guys feel 
you know, how they're going to be using their lower half and transition into, you know, what it's like to get into an active, really aggressive foot strike. I think these are those are just some ways to be able to use those things. You can use connection balls. You can use weighted balls. You can use, God, a million different things that are out there now. It's just, again, this goes. this also goes back to how kids learn. You know, it also goes back into learning styles, like what piece of technology, what piece of equipment, what piece of, what piece of this do we need to get to this player? Because this is how that player is going to best absorb the information we're trying to give them. The majority of guys given, I, and the other part to this, we're, we're in such a rush to get them to understand it that we don't give them time sometimes to actually develop the skills they need to acquire the skills you're trying to get them to do well. So if I have a guy that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on how he braces up at landing or whatever you want to call it, foot strike landing, bracing, mm-hmm. slamming brakes on, I mean, there's a thousand different ways to quantify that. And I've got a kid that is very weak in lead leg strength and doesn't has never done a single leg exercise in his entire life. And you know, my main goal is to get him to brace up better, and I'm going to do it mechanically instead of pay attention to assessment on the front end. What's going on in the weight room and the training room? I'm spinning my wheels. Mm-hmm. I need to make sure that we have a general adrenal strength assessment before we have any ideas of what we're going to do with the players. So really assessing on the front end and trying to figure out what they're going to be good at, what they're not going to be good at in terms of the movement profile of the player, and then trying to put that into movements that we can prescribe for the pre-throw. And then also then try to hopefully mirror that in the throwing program and then translate all of that to the mound. It really starts before they ever show up. It starts the first day they get to you before they can actually train and earn their physicals. <laughs> I'm, assu- I'm assuming I'm assuming before you pre-throw, you're either as a team or a staff doing some type of dynamic stretch. Yeah, well, we call pre uh, our dynamic stretch is pre-throw. Like pre-throw gotcha. for so, us. So you go to you go to pre-throw. Is your throwing program as a pitching staff is that individualized or is that everybody does the same thing as a throwing program? I mean, I've got a thousand throwing programs going around right now. It feels like <laughs> we don't have anybody. <laughs> we don't really have anybody that does the same thing, which makes play kind of complicated sometimes. But you have varying degrees of guys that are doing different types of training all at the same time. Like if you were to come in and watch Arkansas do pre-throw, it looks like total chaos. Right. Like there's thousands. There's a there's something different. There's guys throwing medicine balls. There's guys throwing weighted balls. There's guys throwing plyo balls. There's guys using a connection ball. There's guys in the Velo Pro harness going uphill with a medicine. I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy stuff going on in there, and it's just because it's so individualized that it looks like total mayhem, but it doesn't look like mayhem to the one person that's doing it, which is the only thing that actually matters. Um, but the throwing programs are, you know, the, the situation we're in right now is, is close to our season. Like, starters are doing something different than relievers. Short guys, one-inning guys are doing something different than long guys. Long guys are doing something different than red shirts. And, you know, everybody's kind of on their own deal. And I, I've pretty much done that since I was – like, my first year at Missouri, We got I got, to, I got the job. And I remember looking at two MRIs of two shoulders, the two guys that have had labrum surgery um, in relatively the same area. Uh, before I got to Missouri and they were coming off of their rehab and going to start throwing bullpens. And they, one of them had some kind of a setback. So we re MRI both of them just to be sure. And you get back in there and you, you know, here I am a pitching coach. I look at both shoulders and they look totally different to me in just about every way possible <laughs> other than the actual joint structure. So right. one guy had like a little bony mass that was pushing up against his rotator cuff and the other guy's Tough was clean, but there was some thinning on the back of the rotator. And, like, you just start to think about, all right, well, if those two are completely different and the players look exactly the same and they had surgery to fix this issue, then what do the rest of them look like? 
right. Why should why should I why should I ever have anybody doing the same thing? I should be listening to my players, right? And the players should be listening to themselves. And right. you got to train them to do it a little bit within the first, like how to listen to your arm and how to push it when you need to push it, and how to have. If you think about throwing in terms of intensity, if you think about a seven-day work week, you need to have three pretty intense days to build arm strength, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Now, a 10 for somebody might be at 120 feet. A 10 for another player might be at 350 feet. It's just a matter of the person you know, the person and how they train. And I think it's just being open to listening to your players. And I don't know why anybody would do it. I, I mean, I'm sure there's different ways to do things. And a lot of people have had success in saying this is the way everybody throws and we're all just going to do this. But I learned so much from my players that if they're not active participants and they don't have a voice in their own development, then I don't want to coach in a situation where they don't get to have a voice. That's a great way of putting it because they have to be part of the process. They have to be able to buy into it. I always joke around. I used to say when I first started coaching, if I had a kid who would say to me, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing that with my swing, I would back off immediately and say, all right, well, let's let's change it. And then I got through a period where it was, if I knew it was right, I would say, let's try this. Well, I don't feel comfortable doing it. And I would say, oh, how comfortable did you feel striking out four times last game? <laughs> but, but now I've gotten to the point where if the kid understands himself and he's going to give me a valid reason and, you know, we're in a wide generation, I'm fine. I'm okay with sitting down and, like you're saying, explaining it and mapping a way out about it. But one more thing into what you were talking about. You mentioned, you know, your form out. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the use of ground force and pitching. Can you kind of yeah. explain to somebody that might be listening what your force mound is and what that entails? So it's a, it measures force cells. So it's four force cells that basically start measuring force the second you step onto the mound in three different directions. It measures Y force, which would be if you're looking at the mound, force back towards second base and also transitions into force down the mound going towards the catcher. Measure Z-force, which is force directly into the ground. So if you think about an arrow pointing straight down, it's force going straight down. And then it measures X-force, which is side to side, which would be back and forth on the rubber. If you think about, like, if you're trying to measure where's weight going into the toe or in the heel, right. positive would be one direction, negative would be a different direction. Um, and it measures force in every step you take, every movement you take, it measures in three directions. So if we're talking about using the, using the ground. We want to see you'd be able to put the force into the ground first and then be able to hold it. So by hold it, I mean if you're thinking about how you're going to – I think there's a lot of literature or people on Twitter or whatever have a bunch of ideas about the back leg and pitching and how it's not important, which is totally crazy. Um, Exactly. The back leg being able to drive force towards second base as you're starting to make your move down the mound will create an impulse that you can take into foot strike, which is a way to create potential energy and turn it into kinetic energy when you when you when you slam the brakes on at the base of the delivery. So you want to put it into the ground, you want to hold it over time, you want to stop it and you want to return it fast to vault yourself gotcha. forward basically. So if you can think about the amount of force created, if I'm measuring force in a Y direction back to front, I'm trying to hold force for as long as I can into foot strike when the Y force begins to go forward. Mm-hmm. When it transitions into foot strike, and then I want to return that force into my body as fast as I can to vault myself forward and be able to utilize the force I just created on the ground. So using ground force in pitching is incredibly important. Having used motion capture without ground force and then having using ground force without motion capture, I, you know, gun to my head, I'd probably take the force mount over anything right now. Um, mm-hmm. Both, obviously, the best, you want the best of both worlds, you just get both of them. Or 
you have access to both of them. You have kind of the gold standard of biomechanical pitching development. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, I using the force mount at Arkansas quite a bit. You know, we use it. I mean, we probably use it too much. <laughs> we use it just about. Seems like every day for something different, or at least every couple of days. Talking about racing against that front side in so many worlds and using that kinetic energy in my academy, and you've been there. We we had so many pitchers, so many pitchers come in and out of there. And one of the might have break down four or five errors that gives me fits sometimes with certain kids. Is you know, again, you're talking kids learning pitching from seven, eight years old all the way up to the pro guys we have coming in, there. and that that lead side and how yeah. little little guys swing the gate open, how little guys step out, how they step yep. closed, and, and you work with them, and then you finally get a kid where you say, well, buddy, listen, if I'm going to try and fix that, that lead leg and we're going to work, we're going to try and, the simple terms we use for the little guys, we're going to ride the back leg, we're not going to be open, we're not going to be fully closed, we're going to be slightly closed so that knee and hip can stay inside your lead foot. And one of the funniest stories I got is about a year ago, I had a, like a 12-year-old kid say to me, when I watch Verlander land, he lands wide open. Mm-hmm. And I, you know what my response was? But I coached in the conference against Verlander, and all he did was stick it to me every time he pitched against me for two years. <laughs> so you don't have to explain to me about Verlander because I know what's mechanic. And, and my response was, I agree with you. He is he he does land open, but I'm thinking instead of touching 101, that maybe if he's slightly close, maybe he's touching 104. Maybe. So, I mean, do, you have, do you have a preference about that with that lead side? We're talking about how that foot lands. Um, I think that. The closer you get to your toe being opened at landing, the more problems you end up with. Yeah, I agree. Um, right. Slightly, slightly closed is kind of my favorite. You know, if I had to, it's just the easiest thing for. Again, you have to understand how their hips rotate first, but how much mobility right. they have. But if you could be a slightly closed, I think I don't have anything. To, I don't have anything scientific to back this up, other than however long I've been coaching. But it always seemed like the guys I had that had better breaking balls landed slightly closed. Right. Um, whether that's because of, you know it helps stop the momentum and they're able to cut across the baseball more aggressively, for whatever reason, I don't know. But it just always seemed like if they're slightly more closed. I would take slightly more closed than slightly open. Um, mm-hmm. Being closed too far, I mean, you need space for rotation. So there has to be enough space for your hips to rotate and into landing. And I think that that's important to also be able to identify. It's like your shoulders, you need space for rotation. So, you know, people that want to deaden the front side, throw into a closed front side, it's hard to do that for some guys. But you just have to balance the how much space does this player need to rotate? You know, how much additional space are they creating if they are flying open or, you know, whatever the term terminology that you use is. Just have to be a little bit careful with how far closed, how far open, how far straight, you know, how far perfectly directional because they, they need space to rotate their hips and their shoulders. But the lead leg is incredibly important and been proven in terms of you know generating velocity. It's incredibly important to be able to slam a ton of force directly into the ground and then stop it really fast. I think that too many people actively brace instead of just allowing the force you create to create the brace. I think that that's, that's one of the – I don't know if it's a pet peeve of mine or not, but – I feel like we it, it's something that gets talked about a lot in pitching these days is nothing matters but creating a stable lead leg and there's some truth to that but you know if you're spending all this time actively trying to straighten your leg when you land it's going to create an inefficiency somewhere else so it's just really about coiling up and creating as much energy as you can into into the contact of the ground and then being able to stop the force and return it to your body the faster that thing can go 
back into your body, the faster that you can start to vault yourself forward, I think the better position you are to be able to create velocity, one, and be able to have a little bit more efficiency in your delivery. If you were going to give some advice to perhaps a dad who's like a volunteer coach at a Little League or people who are coaching travel ball and upwards from there, and they're working with young arms, we are on the side of caution. We always tell them, you know, multiply the kid's age by 100. So in other words, if that kid's nine years old, he has 900 competitive pitches in, in a 12-month year, 12-month cycle. Right. And once that kid reaches that number, you shut him down. And you're on the side of caution because you never want to put any kid in a position to get hurt. But if you could give some bullet points as to what would you recommend to volunteer coaches that are dealing with young arms, what are some of the more important things you would highlight? I think that depending on how young the arm is, I guess, is you want to start thinking about training them to be a thrower first before you try to make them into a pitcher. Like train them to be efficient in how they throw a baseball, uh, whether it's positional throwing, whether it's just simple ability to play catch, but really training them in how to be able to move the ball to their partner before you worry about how to have three pitches. I think that most of the time is spent at the younger ages, it seems like anyway. Of I'm going to go to this pitching lesson because I want to either throw harder or like learn how to throw a curveball. And what they need to spend time on is learning how to play catch. And then from there, you learn how to train. You learn some proper or at least find some pre-throw mechanisms that work for you, whether it's bands, whether it's some kind of plyo care throws, or whether it's simple movement quality and movement prep. And start it, Just start at the basic foundations of all of it and start, you know, foundationally training them for strength. You know, whether, I mean, it can be simple as like how to perform a bodyweight squat or how to perform an inline lunge or something along those lines. It's like you got to train them to be an athlete before you train them to do anything that involves being a pitcher. You know, I, I watch even our guys, you know, when we get them, they throw with their stretch delivery to 180 feet. And it's like, that's not right. <laughs> you need to move your feet. You need to be able to like, play catch like a human being first right you can be a pitcher from 90 feet in but i think that that's I mean, probably the first place i would go is you know I, I know that pitching seems like a cool thing to do when you're 10 but you know try to do as many different things as you can in that involve throwing a baseball doesn't mean you got to go play seven other sports if you don't like playing other sports and play baseball right. but right. learn how to be a, a well-rounded generalist first like that's mm-hmm. the it's like anything in life. Like if you don't, if you're not a generalist before you try to be a specialist, you almost have no chance of success. Right. Like every coach should be a generalist first. Like you should be able to do different things before you try to be really good at pitch design. Like that's not something you should spend your time on until you have a general idea of how to use the ground. Like if you're not a generalist as a pitching coach or a generalist as a player first, it's going to be really difficult for you moving forward into anything that's a specialized field. So you think about pitching as a specialized field. You should be really good generally before you're the age of 12. If you're, wanting, if you're trying to train younger players, I think they should be generalists first. Be good at everything that involves throwing a baseball. Be able to throw from different platforms. Be able to launch the ball from the outfield and throw guys out of bases. Be able to throw guys out from shortstop. Be able to turn double plays if you're a left-handed, you know, left-handed throwing first baseman and you can't throw from the same platforms as a shortstop all the time. But be able to be really good at neural baseball skills before you start trying to pitch. It's a great point. I think a lot of value in what you're saying is, uh, I hate to say this, but I don't think, I'm sure you see it in Arkansas, unfortunately, but no matter what camps you guys have there, no matter where you go and, and just watch younger guys play, it's just the kids don't have catch play enough. Kids can't throw a ball for five to ten minutes back and forth at 60 feet without dropping it or without overthrowing or underthrowing. And that's definitely uh, you know, something that we see all the time of epidemic proportions. 
Before we get to the end of the podcast, my opinion, Dave Van Horn has got to be one of the top three college coaches in America. My my youngest brother, when he was playing college football, won the Burlesworth Trophy. Okay. And, yeah, we were out there, my family, and I actually said to one of your ops people was Coach Van Horn on campus. You know, and I don't know if you do, but in my head, I have a list of coaches that I would love to have the opportunity to just have lunch with or something, just pick their brain about coaching. Doesn't necessarily have to be on baseball. They could be a football coach, basketball coach, whatever. And unfortunately, he wasn't on campus. Uh, it was in the off season. But anyway, um, you talk about Coach Van Horn. All the guy does is just win everywhere he goes. And Corey, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. The guy's been a head college baseball coach for 25 seasons. 20 of those 25 seasons, he's been to a regional and eight college World Series appearances. And the guy just no matter where he goes, he's successful. So I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about your experience working with Coach Van Horn. Yeah, I mean, it started when I was a player, actually. Like, I've, I've competed against his teams when I was playing at Missouri and he was coaching at Nebraska. And the teams were always really well prepared, and, and the talent wasn't the level it is now. They were super talented teams back then at Nebraska, but they were just really good at basically every baseball-related baseball related thing you had to be good at to be good at base, to be a good team. They were always really good at it, whether it was just general skills or being able to hit and run or bunt or field the ball in the infield, anything like that. It, the team was always just really good. So you have this outside perspective that, man, this guy either can really recruit or he can really coach. And what, you know, you're never sure until you work with him. I know I've, we have a bunch of mutual people that we had I played whether it worked for him or you know him and uh, coach Jameson who I worked for Missouri and played for Missouri were with together with Team USA and he had come back and told me great things about coach Van Horn and then I heard really good things about him obviously as a, as a coach and it's not hard to see that he's you know he's a winner but getting to work with him it's a dedication every day it's really one of the greatest things you could ever like the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was he hired me mm-hmm. and he's a machine of consistency in everything that he does like whether it's what time he's getting to the office every day, whether it's, you know, how he's going to work with the infielders, whether it's the practice plan being out at this certain time and or how we run practice. You know, it's just we're going to be there at this time. This is when I need pitchers there. This is what we're going to do. And it doesn't really vary too much from those things. And when the time is up and we're done, it's over. You know, it's not like we're going to – something doesn't go right and we're going to spend five hours on this one spot. We have other things to get to. And, you know, he's going to count on his the individual position coach that if it's broken to fix it. And that's great. And it's really good. And from my perspective is, you know, it's not like one of those things you hear a lot of people say, well, he's a great coach because he leaves me alone. That's not why he's a coach. Like, he does not leave you alone, and he shouldn't. Like, it's his program. Um, mm-hmm. He's a great coach because he empowers you. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why he's a great coach. He's not a great coach because he just doesn't care about pitching or anything or he doesn't care about hitting or whatever, you know, people always right. say about people that are great to work for. He's great to work for because he empowers the coaching staff, and he's great to work for because he has a standard. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that you're lucky if you work for guys like this because, yeah. you know, the standard is the standard with him, and there's, he doesn't ever come off of it. And that's the way it should be. And it's yeah. it's very, very, very – it's a fun environment to work in because we're put, it's con- you're constantly being pushed, and it's, it's an incredibly rewarding environment to work in because you're constantly being empowered. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I – I don't have enough good – superlatives to, to say about working with Coach Van Horn. I mean, it's, I think the main thing, the, the greatest compliment I think I can give him is I've probably learned more in one year than I've learned in, you know, 15, 15, 15 however long I've been coaching before that. Right. 
It's, it's pretty so, insightful. So, Matt, this brings us to the last part of our podcast, which we call the Bandbox Inquisition. Okay. And I have created nine questions to kind of get a little bit more in depth with you. So I'm going to fire away sure. question question number one. As a coach, how do you define success? Progress. Progress from any any part, any part of what you're doing with a player. Success is progress. Success isn't always pretty. What is your greatest moment in coaching? I think it's probably winning the Super Regional against Ole Miss and going to Omaha. That was probably the highlight so far. What's the best piece of advice you could give to another coach? Listen to your players. What was your worst moment in coaching, and what did you learn from it? Uh, Worst moment in coaching was definitely the last game of the Division II World Series when I was with. UC San Diego. We had a pitcher on the mound, Guido Knutson, who ended up pitching in the big leagues with the Tigers. And he was a freshman at the time. He was a closer. was a good fastball, kind of okay slider, and it was a two-pitch mix. We had a kid that we were facing from, I forget which school at this point. I think it, it might have been, uh, it was a, it was a, I forget, Emporia State maybe. And we had just gone back with slider twice and like two, got two weak foul balls and threw fastball up. And I was like, all right, now back foot slider. We're in business. And this will end, the, this will get us, we're, we have a one run lead with the guy on first base in the bottom of the ninth. It's like, it's the stuff you read about. <laughs> So I call back, you know, we call Slider again, and he shakes it off, and we call it again, and he shakes it off. And at this point, I wasn't letting pitchers shake pitches. And finally, he throws it, and the guy hit the two-run homer. <laughs> we, we lose, and we get eliminated from the College World Series. And I'm there, like, if we just let him throw the pitch he's convicted in, we win, we, I don't know that we win the game, but we certainly don't end it on something he didn't believe in. Right. And wow. from that moment, which was your you know third third or fourth year coaching, and I basically had to look at an entire team of people that would just have their guts ripped out and been eliminated from the College World Series. I just I thought it was a good idea to throw a slider instead of trusting my player. Never did it again. We all have those moments of learning them. You know, what I mean, and that was just our way of saying, hey, the kid has to be able to throw something with conviction. You know, gotta be was, able to. What excites you the most about coaching? Learning, definitely learning. There's so much out there. Like that's ex- it's exciting every day because there's 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 new things out there and there's new you know smart people to talk to and just just learning is the most exciting thing about coaching. What is the most difficult or challenging part about being a coach? Learning. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't always want to like, you want to feel like you have a handle on things and the hardest thing is that there's there's somebody smarter than you right now that's a better coach than you right now you got to figure out how to chase these people down. And sometimes it's tough to be proven wrong. The learning part of it is the hard is the, is the most rewarding and the most exciting and also the hardest because you have to have, you got to be able to you know, not take yourself too seriously and not think that you've got all the answers. And I think sometimes that's hard. What's one good piece of advice you could give to players about life? It's not fair at all. There's nothing fair about it. If you get drafted and you're a 32nd rounder, the guy that gets, got half a million dollars will get more chances than you till the end of time. And it won't be fair. And, you know, the person that's had the job in front of you who's not good at it but's friends with the boss is going to get more chances to fail than you are as the new guy. And it'll happen like that 100 times out of 100. And it's just that life's not ever going to be fair. And it doesn't – like, no one's going to care. You need to work harder. Those are the – like, 
if you can take your work ethic and just never give in on it, you'll have you'll be successful at something. Who knows what that something will be? But life is not going to be fair. It's not going to be wine and roses. No one's going to save you, and no one's going to care when things don't work out your way. Like, you have to just be able to put your head down and work. If you could have a conversation with any one person in the history of civilization, whom would it be and why? Well, that's a good one. I would probably just say Martin Luther King Jr. And then the, the questions you have to ask are uh, just how hard was it? How many times did you want to not do it? How many times did you want to stop? How many times did you think it was too much? And then what are the things that kept you going? If you think about it, there's a guy who definitely attests to what you had said about life being fair versus not fair. Yeah. yeah. That's a good answer. Last question. Finally, at the end of your career, what would you like your players to have said about you? He cared about us. That would pretty much be the only thing that really matters at the end of it all. Nobody counts the rings. Right. You probably and count how many weddings you get invited to. That kind of shows us why you got into coaching in the first place with an answer like that. Great speaking with you, Matt. Uh, really appreciate your time and uh, learned a lot. And best of luck this uh, season in a couple of weeks. Matt, if people didn't know this prior to listening to the podcast, they know it now. You're hands down one of the best pitching coaches in America at any level. And uh, I appreciate your, your insight and your bestowing your knowledge upon our listeners. You're a great guy. I appreciate your friendship. And uh, I wish you and the Razorbacks the best of luck this season. And please keep in touch. Thank you so much. I really, again, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on with you guys. Thanks, thanks, Tom, and I look forward to speaking with uh, both of you guys soon. Have a great night. Okay, see you all. Corey, great conversation with Hobby. Known the guy a long time, and he never ceases to amaze me. Uh, Coach Van Horn, I read an article that described him in many different ways, but one of the things he had said about him was that he's very innovative, and you can kind of see why the pitchers in Arkansas are so lucky to have him in their corner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's just a wealth of knowledge from mechanics to the science of it, where the game is going. And I learned a ton just listening and going back and forth with you and him. So uh, hopefully the listeners out there who are especially uh, zoned in on the pitching aspect can learn a thing or two from Matt. Yeah, I thought he did a good job speaking about balancing metrics versus the human quotient because that's one of the things it seems like is a constant struggle in baseball now because, as we mentioned in the past episodes, there's more knowledge available at your fingertips than there's ever been in the history of the game. And I think it's important to not only sift through that as a coach and find out what's important, but also find a way to make it translatable to each and every player, regardless of age level and regardless of baseball level. Yeah, I I agree. I think there's you know, certain things that you can take from any level that you're at and to get to where Matt is, you know, he's he's there in that position for a reason. He's worked at all different levels. So I think if coaches and players can kind of adapt to that, you know, they're, they're on the right track. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to remind you, at Bandbox Podcast on Twitter, feel free to reach out to us if you have any insight or any questions. For Corey Nido, this is Paul McGloin. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.